You're listening to The Pillar in Depth, a Catholic storytelling podcast. I'm your host, Kate Oliveira, and this season, we're talking about abortion. In our last episode, we talked about how to separate fact from fiction online, especially when it comes to content related to abortion in the wake of the overturning of Roe versus Wade. A few listeners reached out about a PolitiFact fact check I mentioned last week. A fact check of advertisements by the Christian organization Focus on the Family about the availability of late-term abortions in six states. PolitiFact rated those ads mostly false, even though abortion is technically legal at any stage of pregnancy in the six states mentioned in the ads. The issue PolitiFact found with those ads is that they were misleading. They gave the impression that late-term abortions are really common. One listener suggested that following the same logic, pro-abortion rhetoric about abortion in cases of rape and incest is similarly misleading, since those cases also account for a very small percentage of abortions nationwide. And I would agree with that. It seems to me that the sooner we focus on the facts, the reality of abortion and abortion access nationwide, the sooner we can truly support women experiencing unplanned pregnancies. If late-term abortions are rare, what are the reasons for those rare instances? And how can we respond to those reasons in a life-affirming way? Those are the questions I'm still asking myself. So thanks for reaching out about those things. And please keep sharing your thoughts. Our last episode left off with my friend Holly. Holly had a miscarriage earlier this year, and she told me that it's been really difficult for her to see stories online of women experiencing miscarriage or ectopic pregnancy, not getting the medical care that they need. Stories of doctors turning these women away because they don't want to risk prosecution under new abortion regulations in their state. State laws do have explicit exemptions for miscarriage and ectopic pregnancy. But a miscarriage can look a lot like a self-induced abortion gone wrong. And there's a lot of crossover between abortion and treatment for miscarriage and ectopic pregnancy. Holly told me she was traumatized by her miscarriage, and she couldn't imagine how she would feel if she had been asked if her miscarriage was natural or self-induced. You can listen to more of our conversation in episode three, but here's a clip. One of the things that sticks in my mind is I've read I've read about a lot of women who have been going through a miscarriage in the past couple weeks, and when they've gotten to the hospital, the nurses ask them all of these questions that they're basically trying to figure out: Is this person actually having a miscarriage? Um, are they going through an abortion? And I cannot imagine if someone would have been asking me who knows what questions to try and see, like, are you actually trying to have an abortion right now? I was traumatized enough. I'm still traumatized enough. And and they were so caring and so compassionate. And, you know, everyone treated me with such kindness. I I just, oh, it just makes me angry even thinking about it. I like, I, I don't even know. <laughs> You would have punched someone. Like, I can't even imagine it. Mm. I didn't have answers for Holly, but I thought a pro-life OBGYN might. So I asked her what she would ask a pro-life OBGYN in this moment. 
Oof. Yeah, what, <laughs> what questions? Uh, <laughs> ooh, that's a, that is a big question. Yeah. There's a lot of things going through my head, but one is something related to, <laughs> should we at least change the term from spontaneous abortion mm-hmm. to something else? Heck, why can't we just call it a miscarriage? Like, I don't know. Um, but I would want to know if that's something that they would think might have negative implications um, in the medical world, just even using that terminology. Um, I would be curious their experience if they have had to ask women those questions to see what they're going through and whether or not it was induced or not. Um, I would also be curious I don't know, you asking me, you know, if it's complicated, <laughs> if my emotions are complicated with with Roe versus Wade being overturned, I would I would be curious if they have that same complex kind of entanglement um with that decision or if if it can be like a a straightforward emotion or a response for them. Yeah, I would just want to know for for medical folks, for OBGYN, nurses, how could someone ask those questions of someone going through a miscarriage and ask them in a pro-life way? I spoke with Dr. John Brachalski at the suggestion of a colleague. John founded one of the largest pro-life clinics in the nation, Tepeyac OBGYN in Virginia. John actually used to perform abortions during his residency. But after about seven years, John had a change of heart, and he has practiced pro-life medicine ever since. I asked John for his response to all the confusion and complications surrounding care for miscarriage and ectopic pregnancy after the reversal of Roe. I do think a lot of these cases are kind of rooted in doctors not knowing how to navigate the language and the law. Do you think that's the case? I do. Um, Because most of us have only practiced in a row world, of course they're having a hard time. You know, there for the grace of God go I. I mean, I can't throw stones. These These are my friends. But if you believe abortion is essential health care, you're still my friend. But I would disagree with that. Yeah. And I really don't see any, any need for an elective abortion for health care. Most of my patients who come to us from the pregnancy centers and from the clinics will say, I don't have a choice. I have to have the abortion. Like women don't come in and go, yeah, I got pregnant, so I, I need the. Ab-. No, there's reasons for the abortion. But when there's no disease and it's inconvenience or it's the wrong time, which is 90 plus percent. It's an elective abortion. If the heartbeat's not there, it's not an elective abortion, no matter what procedure looks like, no matter what chemicals. If there is a heartbeat there and there's hemorrhage or infection, chorioamunitis and vaginal bleeding, as life-affirming doctors, we treat the bleeding, we treat the disease. When someone is bleeding, We were called as professionals in the healing profession to run 
toward the siren, run toward the code, run towards the car accident. Heck, I think once or twice I've even had to turn to the last row in the airplane and <clears throat> be the doctor on board the plane. If you're risk averse, don't go into medicine because you know we've been caring for the ectopics and the miscarriages and every other single medical disease or condition long before Roe, during Roe, and now after Roe. John told me about one of his patients, a mom who was pregnant with her third child. Her water broke at 15 weeks. She went to like five doctors in three hospitals, and they all said, it's in your best interest to terminate the pregnancy because your life is going to be threatened with infection, the baby's going to be threatened with malformation and inability to survive outside the womb. World literature on that topic says you need to wait and just be patient, observe, monitor for infection. But right now, at that moment, it's, it's not there yet. Well, the little one was born at 35 weeks, four pounds, 15 ounces, and is totally fine at home with her mom and dad. Now, all we did was help her watch closely, never hope against, you know, reason and medicine, but give them hope, but monitor them closely. And at 22, 23 weeks, when the baby was viable, the hospital said, okay, you can come in now and we'll watch you closely here in the hospital. This sort of example, they don't always work out great like this, but many of them do. And once again, she had no control over the ruptured membranes. It wasn't due, she wasn't smoking or she wasn't, you know, had any of the risk factors. She wasn't infected. Now, if that woman would have gotten like a little elevation in her pressure, like, I mean, elevation in her white blood cell count, or if her blood count started to creep up a little bit, I'm sorry, but life-affirming medicine would also say you've got to deliver the baby. Mm. And it, we're, 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 we're going after the placenta, not the baby. Mm. Now, oh, what's the difference, John? It's the same thing. No, it's not. Words matter. In my conversation with Holly, she mentioned that her discharge papers listed spontaneous abortion as the reason for her visit and care. She wondered why the hospital hadn't used the word miscarriage. She wondered if that change in terminology would protect doctors from litigation in states where abortion is newly regulated. Miscarriages are the other word that moms talk about. It's what is the language of the people. Moms who love and welcome their babies, it's all about miscarriages. Well, no, no, you can't use that word in medicine because, no, you can use that word because you've got to connect with your patient. And if you believe that elective abortion is the direct killing of an innocent human being, it matters. <laughs> there are threatened abortions, which are threatened miscarriages. Those are babies who are bleeding and they're at threat of being miscarried, of aborted. You can use either word. But for moms who are in terror of losing their baby, we use miscarriage. For moms who don't care, many doctors will use abort threatened abortion mm. or 
imminent abortion. Then you have incomplete miscarriages or incomplete abortions. If the placenta comes out, the baby comes out, or a part of this, and they're still bleeding and they're still cramping, well, you got to take care of that just directly and imminently and, and efficiently with a DNC or medication. There's no, you don't have to delay and wait for something to die. Our intent is going after the membranes or the placenta. Knit a book's layer is bad. We got to take care of it. I'm really sorry that this baby's going to die. We talk about double effect. But since nobody cares about philosophy and thought and logic, that gets thrown out. And all, all that matters is patient autonomy, beneficence, maleficence, justice. I can justify aborting a pregnancy on all four of those counts. Well, wait a second. What about doctor autonomy, provider autonomy? What about compassion? What about do no harm? Well, they, they've gotten rid of the Hippocratic Oath. And so these words are all loaded. A missed abortion or a missed miscarriage. Oh, my friend, that means that the baby has died, died, heartbeat gone, but it's still inside of you and you're not cramping and you still feel pregnant because your placenta is still kind of working. How many times do I see those patients? Dr. Puchowski, are you sure? Do one more ultrasound, please. Of course we do. We want them to make a good informed consent. And I know because of the integration of the human woman person, if she's convinced that the baby is gone and has already passed, she heals better. Her red cells and her white cells work better. Her postpartum blues are less. <laughs> this is holistic, excellent care. Just remember that. And so they don't want us to use miscarriage. They want us to use abortion. And that's where the confusion reigns. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists released earlier this year a guide to language and abortion. I looked at it. And I'll be honest, it reads like something out of a dystopian novel. You know, the opening language is the language we use when discussing reproductive health has a profound impact on what people hear and learn. Below is a guide to help inform language choices. And then a list of terms to avoid, a clinical explanation for the recommendation, and alternative terms. Here are some examples. Term to avoid self-induced abortion. With the landscape of medication abortion access changing, more pregnant people are safely managing their abortions using internet-acquired medication abortion. Use instead self-managed abortion. Term to avoid, dismemberment ban. Referring to this medical procedure as quote-unquote dismemberment is intentional use of inflammatory emotional language and centers the procedure on the fetus rather than on the pregnant person who is the clinician's patient. Use instead dilation and evacuation ban. I read a, a short piece by Flannery O'Connor and she talked about uh, tenderness leading to the gas chamber. Without a mooring in something deeper and wiser than our own emotions, our own thoughts. Most folks on both sides really wanna do what's best for women. They believe that, I believe it. And little Johnny here 
during seven years of my life promoted every form of you know stopping the pregnancy every form of preventing a pregnancy children were stds even though i wouldn't say that but they were if you're only tender or empathetic and then you follow the pillars of medical ethics conscience in that case is kept to yourself it's not public don't talk about it with a patient come on tenderness always leads to either the abortion or the gas chamber it seems in history and it's a challenge trying to bring tenderness back to some foundational ethics of the dignity of the human person image and likeness things of that nature but we've lost all that we've jettisoned it all and that's you know that's what we're dealing with today in the family in the profession of medicine you're talking about doctors you know having this almost like disagreements about language and all of this different stuff what advice do you have for just lay people who don't have medical training who are seeing these words abortion miscarriage are just thrown out on the internet how can we navigate that you know when we're we're trying to figure out exactly what's going on here i mean we're all trying to figure it out but we don't have the medical training or knowledge to kind of back back up our response to these things i guess if that makes sense yeah so i can only speak as a gynecologist and i've learned this from my female patients um there's a certain still silent voice in the heart of women because i see women that deep down inside they recognize that something is not right and i think that it's going to make it's going to be very important to do the best you can with the providers and the doctors in your area to really do your due diligence when you go search for their expertise now i understand that there's a whole subset of people who need high risk medical care like going to the university setting where so much of that is you know abortions are performed or the other extreme of i just want a, a simple home birth and be open to the natural way that my body was intended well both of those providers could be pro abortion but they have to be excellent at what they do and they have to at least respect where you're coming from even if they dismiss you at least they're honest with you so you've got to trust them in the tough cases because in a simple birth it's easy <laughs> you don't need a lot of training and you real your body knows what it's doing but because we don't live in the garden of eden stuff happens and in those tough moments don't hesitate to contact people like yourself who can then maybe refer folks because you know even this morning i took three phone calls from patients in general 
you know, I'm not giving out advice, but I'm giving opinion, you know, just kind of thoughts, opinions, trying to support them where they're at. And it's not just me, but it's many of us across the country. I think it's vital, especially in these times, because women, what, you know, moms have this uncanny ability to blame themselves for their miscarriage, blame themselves for their high blood pressure. And I think it's this growth of what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a mother, the intrinsic value that's in your heart. You're, you were made for this. You were made for this time. Granted, it's not always the best time to get pregnant. No, it's, my gosh, a da- Down syndrome. Uh, oh my God, a baby that's going to die. I'm in an ICU. There is a way to talk through all of that. As I always say to patients, uh, children are never the disease. They're not an STD. Pregnancy, the pain of pregnancy, the pain of femininity, the pain of being a woman physiologically came after the fall. So I would say spend some time in the word, spend some time with the sacraments if you're Catholic, and really take it to Christ. For us Catholics, take it to the men and women who've gone before us, that cloud of witnesses. Take it to your pastor. Take it to a good doc who, who, who you would at least trust and work with those folks in your own area because that's, what, that's where God has planted you. That's what I would say. It's not going to be easy, especially now. Can you imagine, you know, you delivered babies during COVID, right? I mean, yeah. come on. I mean, that, that must have been wild. Mm-hmm. I know it was wild for us. And so science changes with time. And I'm praying and, you know, really believing that with good conversation, good science, and open hearts, uh, we, can con- we can have conversations about this, mm-hmm. you know, doctor to doctor, professional to professional, but also professional to patients and patients to professionals. There was one other question Holly had that I forgot during my conversation with John, so I emailed him. Have you ever had a woman come in for treatment for an early miscarriage and you've wondered if it was self-induced? I wrote, if so, how did you approach that? John told me that ultimately the answer didn't matter that much. It never affected his care for that patient. I found this next piece really interesting, although I don't know that it provides that much clarity for Holly. Women make vocalizations when laboring and giving birth. I remember the nurse during my labor with my daughter Maggie told me that she could tell how progressed Maggie was based on the sounds I was making when I was pushing. It's pretty wild stuff. Anyway, John said the vocalizations he has experienced at birth from women who have aborted earlier unborn children are different from moms who have not aborted. But that is another story, he wrote. I shared this edit of my conversation with Dr. Prochalski with Holly, and she said she listened to it and she thought it was really good, but she wasn't in a good place to really respond to it right now. And that's okay. If you had questions that were similar to Holly's, I'd love to hear your own feedback about this conversation. Was it helpful? What other questions do you have? Anything along those lines. John plans to publish a book this fall about his conversion from performing abortions to founding one of the largest pro-life clinics in the nation. 
The Pillar in Depth is a production of Pillar Media. I'm your host, Kate Oliveira. I want to thank Dr. John Bruchalski of Tepiak OBGYN in Virginia for talking with me and my friend Holly for continuing to be so vulnerable with me during this challenging time. Also, I realize I've been inviting you to reach out with feedback, but I haven't shared my email. You can find it in the show notes for this episode and every future episode, I promise. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.